Good morning. What a great day for a picnic, huh? I hope you uh, all can join us out there. It's going to be a beautiful day, really fun. Uh, for those of you watching online, just a heads up, we are going to be uh, sharing communion at the end of the service this morning. And for all you youth who are age 7 to 12, as you know, we are going to be having a question of the day at the very, very end of the service. <clears throat> and the prize for some lucky person is right up here. And it uh, looks like some really fun games. So anyway, that's what's happening. I'd like to start out showing you a picture here. This is a picture of the oldest copy, the oldest complete copy of the Ten Commandments in existence. It's written on one of the 2,000-year-old Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's so brittle that it was last displayed for just two weeks back in 2015 before going back into a secure, pitch-black, climate-controlled storage facility in Jerusalem. But it is precious, <clears throat> precious to them. And starting today, we're going to take several weeks to look at the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. And we could easily devote an entire message on each one of these, but we're gonna, we've opted to combine some of them, okay? As you know, the first four of those Ten Commandments deal with our vertical relationship to God. And the remaining six commandments deal with our horizontal relationship to other people and how we treat one another. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to be looking at the first three commandments, and they deal with, one, our exclusive worship of God above all things, two, our mental perception of God and our tangible depiction of him, and three, our reverence for God in how we use his name. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. But before we do that, I want to preface this with a very important idea. When many skeptics read these three commands, they criticize God for being vain, egocentric, narcissistic, and selfishly demanding of everybody's worship. They see him as a megalomaniac, obsessed with power, and as one who is so insecure and needy that he needs the continuous praise and adoration and affection of people. I mean, why else would a God demand and command the exclusive worship of all creation? That's just how fallen, unsaved minds tend to think. They assume the worst of God because they view him through the lens of themselves, themselves. Now, for any human to make such demands could only be viewed as incredibly prideful, right? But God is not like us, and his motives are radically different from ours. So this is just incredibly important for each of us to understand. God is Love says that in 1 John 4.16. So the question is, how 
is God's command for us to love him supremely, not narcissistic, but actually an expression of his loving nature. Well, let me ask you this. What is the greatest, most glorious, perfect, satisfying, beautiful, enthralling, desirable, blissful, priceless thing that has ever existed? God! He is the very definition and essence of life and life to the the fullest. And so, for God to direct our gaze and our attention to just anything or anyone else other than him would not be loving. Everything else is so vastly inferior that God would actually have to hate us to command that our highest affection and allegiance be directed anywhere else. Does that make sense? So these first three commands that we are about to read are not ultimately about God's benefit. They're for our benefit and our greatest and highest good and maximum joy and satisfaction. And no one, no one has written more extensively about this than John Piper. If you've read anything by him, it just, it just oozes with this concept. And this is my favorite quote in, in the whole message this morning. He says this, love labors and suffers to enthrall us with what is infinitely and eternally satisfying, God. Therefore, God's love labors and suffers to break our bondage to the idol of self and focus our affections on the treasure of God. Love is doing whatever you need to do, even to the point of dying on the cross, to help people see and savor the glory of God forever and ever. Love keeps God central because the soul was made for God. That's so good and so rich. Proverbs 27.20 says that the eyes of man are never satisfied. Do you resonate with that? They're never satisfied. Everyone craves the ultimate, the ideal, the perfect. A new car, new house, a new outfit, a new job, a new toy, a new spouse. We easily become enamored with anything that is new, but not for long. Never for very long. Why is that? It's because our eyes that God created and put in our heads, our eyes were made to gaze on perfection. Perfection. Say that word with me. Perfection. And there is nothing in this world that is perfect. You see the problem? Our eyes were created to feast 
upon the manifold, manifold perfections of God alone. So the motive behind all of God's commands is love, including these first three commands. And so instead of viewing them as you know unreasonable burdens that are laid upon us by an unreasonable God, we should view them as an unparalleled privilege. Think of a blind person, somebody born blind, you know, blind from birth, lived their whole life, who suddenly receives the gift of sight. We see that happen in the Gospels. They've never enjoyed the blazing beauty of a sunset, the vibrant colors of a meadow full of wildflowers, the vastness of the Grand Canyon, or the sweet face of a newborn baby. This is our third grandchild born two days ago, Isla May. <laughs> but suddenly, for the first time, they can enjoy all these things to the fullest. You see, before God saved us, we, we were blind to his beauty and glory and excellence and love. And by dying on the cross, he opened our eyes so that for the first time, our eyes could feast on perfection. We, are, we no longer have to settle for infinitely inferior objects of worship. Amen? The Rolling Stones made millions and millions of dollars singing, I can't get no satisfaction, though I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. Why did they make millions? It's not because they're a particularly great band, at least in my opinion, <laughs> or because they offered true satisfaction. But it was because that sentiment, it resonated with people. It resonated. It's the same reason why the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Except in the Bible's case, it doesn't just resonate with our desire for satisfaction. It actually solves it. It solves it. In Isaiah 55, 2-3, read what God says. Come! All you who are thirsty, to the, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. Come, Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. This is the spirit of the first three commandments of God. This is God's heart. You know, it's, it's like God is, is commanding us to come to this lavish feast. And, and we're like, oh, I guess I'll come since it's a commandment. Since I have to do it, all right. It's a feast. Does anybody have to command you to go to Thanksgiving dinner? No. So, God wants us to delight in the richest of fare. 
This is for our benefit. With that introduction, you can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. It's on page 61 in the Bibles before you. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray before we begin. Oh, Father, we love you. And we can only say that because you loved us first. You set your affection on us while we were yet sinners, your enemies. And this morning, we pray you would help us to understand your commandments, but also your heart behind them. Bless us with the ability to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength until it's overflowing from us like a, a geyser or, or like a, a dam that just breaks. Enlarge our hearts to comprehend the, the, the length and width and height and depth of your love for us and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read together. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 7. This is our passage. We'll come back to it verse by verse. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So before God issues any of his commandments here, he reminds his people that he is the one and only God who rescued them out of 400 years of slavery. Now that rescue wasn't by any of the Egyptian gods with whom they had become so familiar, nor was it a a collaborative effort among many gods. No, this was independently and exclusively the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who rescued them and saved them because he cared for them. And the first command, again, for their greatest good was, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, some critics have misinterpreted this to mean that it's okay to worship other gods as long as Yahweh is worshiped first and foremost. But that contradicts many clear verses. In Hebrew, this command is is somewhat hard to translate. It can mean, you shall have no other gods apart from me, or besides me, or over against me. Another translation says, you shall not prefer other gods to me. But the result of all of them is consistent and the same. And it's seen in Isaiah 42, 8. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved images or idols. Now, the Hebrew word for gods here, up above the first verse, is Elohim. 
Elohim. Over 2,000 times in the Bible, this word refers to the unique one and true creator God. But sometimes it refers to other lesser spiritual beings. It can even refer to demons, okay? As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6, for although there may be so-called lower G gods, that's Hebrew, Elohim, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many lower G gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, whether this commandment is referring to man-made idols being worshipped as gods or real spiritual beings being worshipped as gods, or both, it doesn't undermine the claim that Yahweh is the one true God who alone is worthy of worship. So in the ancient world, polytheism, or the worship of many gods, was the norm. And some experts believe that Egypt had over 2,000 pagan gods and goddesses. 2,000. So after 400 years there, the Israelites had been, become so corrupted by Egypt's religion that they no longer knew who the one true God really was. Joshua 24, 14 says that the Israelites actually worshipped the pagan gods of Egypt. And so in Exodus 2, 23, when Israel cries out for deliverance from their slavery, it does not say that they cried out to the Lord, their God, okay? Nor did they use any of God's names. In other words, they were seeking help from any deity that could provide it. But through the plagues, as we've covered in the past, through the plagues, God proved that he was the only all-powerful God over everything, right? So that's the first commandment. Let's talk about the second commandment, Exodus 24 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So this passage forbids worshiping created things like the sun, the moon, the stars, things that people have historically worshiped a lot. It forbids emperor worship as was the case in the Roman Empire. And it forbids worshiping volcanoes or cows or, you know, sea creatures. But it's mainly talking about carved figures of, of wood or stone or metal. Now, there were lots of ornately engraved decorations inside the Jewish temple. You know, they had a golden lampstand, they had gold carved pomegranates, and they had two giant golden cherubim angels. But none of those things violated this commandment because they weren't objects of worship. That's the key. Israel was supposed to be distinguished from all the other nations by their imageless worship. Why? 
Because God is spirit. He's spirit. He cannot be represented by anything created or tangible. Mankind was created in the image of God, but that doesn't make us a bunch of idols. Okay? Being his image bearers is a status. It's not a visual depiction of God, right? Jesus is the only one who is the very image of the living God. He is the radiance of God's glory, and it says the exact representation of his nature and his being. So the second commandment is all about images. And the root, that's the root from which we get the word imagination, right? God has given each of us an incredible imagination. I mean, you think of the art and the, the, the construction and, and just things in this world. It's mind-boggling. It's a wonderful thing that God has given us. But it doesn't mean he wants us to use it on him, Right? And the reason is, we are incapable of imagining him accurately. At every point, he is greater than we can possibly grasp. We will always tend to scale God down. We scale down his size, his power, his holiness, his justice, his involvement, his requirements. This reminds me of the, you know, the Far Side comic strip. You know, he's, God the Father is always portrayed in this visible old man figure with a big white beard, kind of overweight, you know, just kind of pulling the strings and directing the world, you know. It's really blasphemous, you know. So what about all the paintings of Jesus that are in so many churches? You know, are those idols? Well, here's the oldest known painting of Jesus that we know of. It was painted around 235 AD and it was discovered in Syria. And since then, there have been many, many more images made. I grew up in a church with the one on the top left. Good thing it didn't have blue eyes, as some of them do. <clears throat> so are they a violation of the second commandment? A good, good question. Some churches actually do venerate and worship icons and statues and images, okay? And that's clearly a violation. But most churches don't, in which case, I think they're fine. The, the, the key is, are they being worshipped or not? I have friends who won't watch the TV series based on the Gospels called The Chosen, uh, I've watched them all. But they don't watch it because they don't want their minds to associate the actor that plays Jesus with the real Jesus. And I can respect that. I can respect it, even though that's, it's not a particular stumbling block for me. I get it. But they also don't like how the gospel storyline is embellished and added to because it can blur and confuse the true narrative in people's minds. But again, you have to keep in mind that The Chosen, which is wildly popular, is of a particular genre, all right? It is historical fiction, which is a legitimate genre, which by definition is fiction. 
It's fiction that is based upon real historical events. We watch historical fiction movies all the time. You know, like the World War I blockbuster in 1917. Those things didn't happen exactly the way they're portrayed, but it's based on real events. And we understand that what we're watching is an interpretation of real events, but that many of the details have been added. So we need not be offended by that. At the end of the day, I think it's good for us all to keep in mind that Jesus no longer looks like any of the images or characters on TV or the movies or paintings or anywhere. He is now forever in his glorified form. As we read in Revelation 1, 13 to 16, in the midst of the golden lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is present-day Jesus that we worship and pray to. Another current description is found in Revelation 19, 12 to 13. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Is this how you view Jesus? Scripture gives us these word pictures to inform and direct our present mental image of our Savior. So the second commandment is not about worshiping many gods. It's about not imagining the true God to be like yourself or something lesser. It's not so much about a metal image as it is a mental image. So why is this so important? Because it's because we become like what we worship. We see this principle throughout Scripture. You know, I recently watched a, a clip from uh, Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, and you recall uh, the, the king of the apes, Louis, you know, the big, I don't know if he's an orangutan. What's, you know, he, he, he idolizes humans. He, he wants to be a human. You know, he's like, I want to walk like you, talk like you, too hoo hoo. That's all I know. He wants so bad to be a human. And he idolizes them, and and that makes him want to be like that, what he idolizes. But in Psalm 50, 17 to 21, God reproves his people. He he reproves their behavior first, but then he, he shares what the real root of their bad behavior really is. Read this with me. God says, you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. 
You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. Why did they do all those things? You thought that I was just like you. Wow. So revealing. People have a chronic habit of creating God in their own image. Why do they do that? They do it to justify and condone and approve of their sinful lifestyle. Bottom line. You know that rings true. This is universal. This is basically the history of the world in a nutshell. Think about this. When the Israelites bowed down to that golden calf, they were using their imagination to conceive of the one true God in terms of a lie. And the lie was that God was a God of power, but not purity. Not purity. They weren't worshiping a piece of gold in the shape of a calf. They were worshiping a God who not only tolerated, of, tolerated but approved of their real God, which was fleshly indulgence. Their real God was not the golden calf. It was pagan revelry and drunkenness and sex. Those were the gods they worshiped. The calf was just an excuse. Just an excuse. Still, Moses took that golden calf, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, threw it into the water, and made him drink it. It was the first, first caffeinated drink. <laughs> Sorry. One practical from this. One practical is that we should never, we should never catch ourselves saying things like, this is how I like to think about God. This is how I like to think about him. It sounds so, I don't know, innocuous. And yet in our culture, that is exactly how people think. Exactly. The question today is no longer, who is God? The question today is, who is God to you? To you. And God's response to that is, I am not who you think or say that I am. I am who I am. Whether you believe it or not, and whether you like it or not. Anything else, no matter how well-intentioned, is just an idol of our own imagination. This is why God hates idols. As it says in the Expositor Bible Commentary, back. Thus all idolatry, which scripture labels everywhere as spiritual adultery, that raises up competitors or tolerates any kind of rivalry to the honor, glory, and esteem due to the Lord will excite his zealousness for the consistency of his own character and being. Every form of substitution, neglect, or contempt, both public and private, for the worship of God is rejected in this second commandment. 
That sums it up really well. All right. Finally, let's look at the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Just for review, the first commandment related to to the internal worship. That is, having no other competing gods in our hearts internally. The second commandment related to external worship. That is, how God is visibly and outwardly portrayed. But the third commandment here relates to the profession of our mouths in how we worship. God's name stands for so much more than just the verbalization of a word. The phrase, the name here, includes God's nature, his being, his very person. In Hebrew, that phrase, the name, is the word Hashem. Hashem, it's it's the Jews' way of identifying God without actually speaking his name out of reverence. Now, the name Yahweh, or the Lord, appears some 7,000 times in the Old Testament. And we don't need to be superstitious about saying it like the Jews are. But we must not misuse it. To take God's name in vain is equivalent to tainting or violating his, his identity. The word vain in the command, it can mean empty, it can mean worthless, or to no good purpose. And we don't have time to look at all the verses, but the Old Testament identifies several ways in which this third commandment can be violated. Let's just briefly outline a few. First, blaspheming or cursing the name of God. You can read about that in Leviticus 24, 16. This would include not only cursing God directly, but using his name as a curse word. And it would include using his name in any light or frivolous manner. How prevalent is that in our society? It's everywhere. Nobody uses Buddha or Confucius or, you know, Muhammad. Nobody uses any other curse word. Why do all these other religions, they still use the God of the Bible's name as a curse word? It makes no sense unless there's something behind it. God is really the, the, the one true God that internally, maybe not even consciously, they're rebelling against. Two, making false, making empty or false oaths. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord, Leviticus 19.12. When you make a declaration swearing by God's name, it must not be a false promise or one that you don't intend to keep. And Jesus actually gave us a new instruction on this in Matthew 5, 33 to 37, when he said, again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Uh, Third, is claiming false visions and false claims to speak on God's behalf. Jeremiah 23, 25. Four, this one's kind of interesting, sacrificing one's children to the false god Molech, Leviticus 18, 21. This was considered a violation of the third commandment because it obviously profaned 
God's name. Basically, you see, anything that we do that publicly drags God's name through the mud or casts him in a bad light, that's, that's a violation here. It violates the third commandment. And there were many more things like this, such as profaning the ceremonial laws that, in effect, devalued the name of God. And many of these violations were punishable by being stoned to death. It's a big deal. God's name is to be held in the highest honor in all places and at all times. And we see why when we do just a quick survey of the Bible. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, Psalm 8.1. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, Psalm 29.2. The first petition of the Lord's prayer is, hallowed be your name, Matthew 6.9. The apostles proclaimed that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul assured the Romans that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. And the culminating event of all human history and creation is when at the name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 to 11. So clearly, clearly God does not want us to forget the holiness and importance of his divine name. All right, let's wrap up here. Finally, what, what are these three, why do these three commandments actually exist? If we could kind of sum that up, I've got three reasons. First, God didn't need the Israelites' worship. The Israelites did. They had just escaped Egypt, which worshipped a pantheon of gods, so God reminds them not to worship any god but him. Second reason, worshiping God is right, because God is worthy of worship. We forget that. He deserves it, and we ought to give him what he deserves. But it's, again, it's not merely a duty. It's a delight. As C.S. Lewis famously said, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It completes it. This is not duty. This is delight. This is maximizing delight. And third, you might ask, why does it matter so much if I, you know, if I do worship other things? Well, chew on this. It's because worshiping something unworthy of worship has bad real-world implications. Just read the Old Testament. People were burning their children alive as an act of worship to the false god Molech. That's where it goes. You see, who or what we worship really, really, really matters. And when, when that happens to be anything but the God of the Bible, as history has proven, what's the result? 
evil, chaos, injustice, death, and destruction. That's where it goes. God is holy. And his greatest aspiration for us is to be like him. It's holy, to be holy. That's the point of his laws. So I just want to leave you with one last quote by Paul Washer before we share communion. I think this is a good thing to end on. He says, we don't teach our children that holiness is a set of rules. We teach them this is who God is. This is who he is. There is no greater adventure, no more splendid pursuit than to chase after this magnificent being whose glories know no end. Amen. Amen. Band, you guys can come on back up. Before we share communion, I'd just like to mention, this, this is for those of us who have placed our, our trust, our faith in Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins. If you'd like gluten-free, just raise your hand right now. We'll get that to you. But Jesus instructed his followers to do this in remembrance of him and what he has accomplished for us and to proclaim his death and the saving merits of his death until he comes again. And even though we are far from perfect and we, we continue to sin in this life, God says to us in Hebrews 10, 14, that by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. Let that sink in. In God's estimation and and by God's own words, he says, you are presently, currently, right now, perfected forever. You may not feel that way. You may not look that way. You might be able to point to a score of sins you're still struggling with. God says you're perfect. You're still being sanctified, but in some way, you are perfect. And communion is a reminder of that. And as a result, that should thrill our hearts. If we read on in that same chapter, it gives us three practical things we can do in response to Christ's sacrifice and our communion with him. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's what we're doing. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We're doing that here too. For he who promised is faithful. And finally, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we love you. We worship you this morning. And God, we thank you that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from our futile way of life, but rather with blood, precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ.
It's in that righteousness that we stand, not in our own works, not in our own good intentions, not in our track record. We stand in your grace, your unmerited favor, based on the real body and blood that was offered up, suffered in our place. And we just remember that, Lord, this morning as we take these elements, the the wine and the bread, as tangible reminders of the gospel, the good news that we are forgiven as a gift forever. All our sins, not just from here backward, but from here to the end of time, they're covered by that blood forever and ever. We thank you for that. We love you, Lord. We worship you. Our hearts overflow with praise and thanksgiving because you did it all. Amen.